Uh, happy 10-year anniversary, happy David. Happy 10-year anniversary, Brittany. 10 years ago, yeah. David and I. Also, happy 10-year anniversary to a wonderful little film called Avatar. Hell yeah. <laughs> so 10 yeah. years ago today, David and I went on our first date to see... Avatar. Avatar. And we, we bonded over how much it sucked. Yes, we did. We did. <laughs> we did not like that movie at all. We bonded over how much we knew it was going to suck before yeah. seeing it. Yeah. And then after seeing it, how much it did in fact suck. Which I've, has really been like a cornerstone of our relationship has been like criticizing things together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would yeah. say the foundation yeah. really of our yeah. relationship is criticizing of, things together. Yeah. A lot of media. You know, like watching bad media and be like, that was bad. And, and watching good media and being like, yeah. that was good. Yeah. So what about Smurf uh, Pocahontas that did you guys not like? That it was Smurf a Smurf Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Oh, okay. yeah. But it had mechs. That was cool. It did. It yeah, did but mechs. it was also like you have sex through your hair or something. Well, you have sex right? like that right? through the earth, right? That was like Yeah, but you have it. to like plug in your hair to yeah. the earth. Yeah, yeah. And then you like dial up to the other person and it was like sex. Like yeah. Through, it's, it's like it's cyber sex yeah, through it's your hair. It's cyberpunk uh, Smurf Smurfette. Sex. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, that, that actually makes it sound cooler than that movie was because it's mostly it's like I'll just watch Fern Gully if I want that exact same plot line. I yeah. think that's exactly what we said. Yeah. Was like it was just like Fern Gully, but not as good. I mean, y- it was sexy though. Y'all can hate, but that movie no comment did <laughs> being sexy. That movie did directly lead to some great scientific discoveries uh, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And, you know, I think that without that blockbuster success, we, we just wouldn't know as much about the deep ocean as we do now. Wasn't that for Titanic? No. Remember? No. Like, so David Cameron, after he made that movie... Um, Af- wh- Avatar. Avatar, yeah. Okay. Yeah. His next project was commissioning the build of a personal submarine. And then he went deeper than any person ever has in a submarine and went to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Why did he go? We made that happen with our purchase of our movie tickets. <laughs> wow. That's a really good question. Yeah, I, why, I, why is he going? <laughs> like, I, not someone who, like, can teach us something about the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Like David Attenborough? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send white, rich, famous men to the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> For different reasons other than learning. Uh, also, my birthday today. Yeah. So... I I might. So this is, there are so many things happening today because this is also, yesterday was the end of dry January. So I am a bit hungover. I'm already a bit drunk. It's wet February. It is wet February, friends. So the if the quality in podcast goes either up or down dramatically, then we will know to attribute it to me being particularly goofy on this day. Yeah. It's a different vibe, but it, uh, it's still good. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag vibin. <laughs> Speaking of uh, goofy vibin, we're trying to impeach our president. Hell yeah, we yeah. are. And we are not doing a good job. I don't know it. what you guys are talking about. I think that Alan Dershowitz had a perfect, perfect defense of the president and his own sex life. Nancy um, Pelosi does something to Trump every day. She or just, was it? She, uh, Amy Klobuchar is Nancy yeah, Pelosi. If you don't think a woman can beat Trump, let me tell you. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi beats him every day. day. Uh, she just keeps pushing the pwn button. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our girl Klobuchar is getting a little uh, 
and negative press attention. Yeah, for, well, she's got endorsed by the New York Times. What happened? She this um she got endorsed by the New York Times. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know what you've seen. They've they've published race science. They've published a lot of anti-trans stuff. They don't like work climate change denial. Yeah, climate change denial. Uh, yeah. like I'm surprised that Warren Klobuchar haven't tried to distance wars. themselves from that endorsement. I really think that her fo- their followers need to call upon them to distance yeah. themselves yeah. from this warmongering race science publication that I mean, has, it, ca- you know, caused so much harm to so many. So I was reading uh, the Brunigs uh, posted an article that was uh, talking about the deontological or consequentialist perspectives on the left in terms of morals. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the idea of, like, seeing you know, um, descriptions or discrimination of people based on protected class as like categorically horrible and terrible and needing to not only not be done, but incredibly distanced from like, that's like one way of moral thinking. And the other is consequentialist, which is like, you know, sort of a materialist, uh, critique. And so there was a lot of debate around the, we, we talked about this and so I don't want to a dead horse so to speak but the um the whole joe rogan endorsement and people were on the internet uh, uh that i was reading about this actually after we did that episode and the thing that people were talking about was colin powell being described uh, you know uh, yeah. compared to uh joe rogan how dare you it's not fair to compare colin powell to joe rogan yeah and, <laughs> and there was this awkward confusion because yeah. you know, like wait who do you think is worse <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So, so a lot of people were like you can't compare a four-star general american icon like black icon of like success and like honor within our like official systems of analysis i can um, speak hebrew just you know a very smart man but grew up in a jewish deli hit one of his biggest regrets did they, did they uh, have him locked there like the whole time he was a child did he let leave <laughs> Like, like he worked there for like most of his life. Okay. Yeah. Really? When you Cold say somebody yeah. grew up in a Jewish deli, it yeah. kind of sounds like, like the in Jews the refrigerator. Like yeah. had him yeah. as a slave and yeah. like wouldn't like cha- chained him to some pastrami. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but, but the, sorry, I'm, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, so Colin Powell has admitted to like the worst thing he's ever done. Yeah, is uh, sell the Iraq War. Right, um, right. Because and, it was the worst thing he's ever done. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it really was. And yeah. as, as a consequence of you know the most famous and worst thing that he's done, over a million people innocent people have died yeah and that not only just as a direct result of the war but think of all of the resources that have that could have otherwise been used for the public good how many people's lives could have been saved how you know how much closer could we be to like carbon neutral you know carbon emissions neutral with with all of those resources being used in the public trust i mean it's like the consequences of colin powell's actions like cannot be calculated they are incalculable we could be living in an entire we could be living in fucking star trek by now for all we know if that fucking war hadn't happened (laughs) so i mean it it, it, and and big asterisk we had a socially powerful narrative and mechanism to propel that amount of human endeavor and energy into a cause that was just which, which we the, didn't have regardless we, we did of whether it, but uh, the rhetoric of that entire administration yeah. and his role in it also contributed to the exact opposite type of mindset right yeah, one of like fear and hatred of the other and tribalism and like nationalism i mean all of these things are connected in my opinion but yeah but we also need to think about like who will ellen go to a football game with yeah if not war criminals also they hate us for our freedom yes. that's true they do yes, hate us for do. our freedoms yeah uh no it I, I completely agree. It's so, similar. So what you're talking about here with this tweet, though, mm-hmm. 
and everybody was like, well, so wait, who do you think is worse? A similar thing happened at the debate when Elizabeth Warren said that she was the only person on stage to have beat a Republican in the last 30 years. And Bernie, supo- and Bernie, you know, oh, speaks yeah, up and says, 30, yeah. yeah, it's um, been exactly 30 years, but it was and, 30 years ago. And like you would go on Twitter and, the, and people would be saying, you know, 20 plus 10 equals 30. And people on both sides would be liking it because it, you know, it's kind of like the old woman, young woman, um, oh, that's uh, the uh, optical illusion. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it looks to you like what you, what you want it to look like. That's confirmation um, bias. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's odd, but, but the, the big thing that I liked about that Brunegar article was talking about how these two value systems are not compatible which is to say you can't make an argument as it relates to acceptance or rejection if you include both of them, because they are contradictory in a lot of ways. And so, like, I guess the nuance take is, like, to try to look at everything from every perspective and try to, you know, come up with your own subjective cumulative analysis on an event. But, like, you know, people are like, how could you compare, like, one of the most successful Americans ever like up through the ranks of the military and blah 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 with like a broy podcaster and the other one's like the guy's a war criminal the guy right. like, literally you know caused the death of over a million people etc and yeah I think it's uh it, it comes down to what you and why you value you mm-hmm. know things yeah people. absolutely uh this is the last thing I'll say about anything Rogan adjacent. <laughs> Just because it's like so, uh, this is the last thing I'll ever say in my entire life. About I hope so. Good God. Yeah, I, ho- I hope that's true. I hope it's yeah. the last thing anybody is ever that, says. Yeah, it, it is a, um, but I'll say it only because I think it's like relevant to a much wider part of politics is that the the idea that like someone else can poison your movement more than you can influence them, I think really belies a distrust or a disbelief in your own ability to convince people or that, or like the power of your politics. That, like, you think other people impact you more than you can impact them. And yeah. politics, just like dating, is all about confidence. <laughs> it true. is. It really that is. is. Yeah. I'm a pickup yeah. artist turned political um, uh, <laughs> strategist <laughs> that, uh, you know, you we will be me. We will be talking about uh, pickup artistry yeah. somewhat in the bonus in the episode. Bonus, yeah. yeah, I... I, I we're going to be commercial there for you. I, for the record, I'm, I've never been a pickup artist. Chris is, Chris, Chris <laughs> is literally... He sold a fedora book. right now. <laughs> he runs a website called Steal Your Girl. <laughs> dot biz <Info>. biz <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> bang dsa <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so i yeah i i think it's it's either that it's either you don't believe in your uh, in you or your your beliefs ability to sway people or i i think this is a more insidious version that is endemic to liberals is that um you want to believe so badly that your beliefs come from being smart that's and, exactly and, that's... and understanding really complicated things, and that's mm. the only way you can arrive at your good politics is if you're super smart and you understand really complicated things. Then it's like, well, if you have a dumb person saying things, then there's no way that you're like they're just going to make everyone else stupid. Right? Yeah, that's it's absolutely just, what it is. Liberals yeah. don't want dumb people agreeing with them yeah. because it mm. undercuts their worldview that like they are the smart ones with the good ideas, and you can only come to those good ideas by being smart. Yeah, because because now Joe Rogan's cheating. Like, how the hell did he get to the right idea if he's not if he doesn't like have these like cultural markers of being smart? You right. know, it's like yeah, yeah, which is just like okay. 
I know you want to get off Joe Rogan. We have to get off Joe Rogan. We have to. (laughs) I just want to say that I can't make the same claim because he's my problematic fave. Of course. And that probably most of, you know, American dudes out there. Because I actually like his program a lot. Um, As much as I disagree with him on a lot of things. He's a good interviewer. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about how he might not be a good interviewer, but he's he's somewhat of an enjoyable to listen to. Yeah. Entertaining interviewer. But I have to say, like, the whole shtick of him being like stupid is like a shtick. It is like it is, yeah. he's obviously an incredibly intelligent person who's able to and create a media empire like essentially on himself as a brand. Right. No, and you're absolutely he right. He yeah. is able to engage both theoretical physicists and be like, but I'm like a dumb guy who like lifts weights. You gotta like tell me about this like space time like distortion field theory that uh, Einstein was talking about in this. And like, does he literally believe, you know, sometimes you can just go, whoa, and they're like, that's exactly the thing that you're supposed to say to connect with your audience to this. He's a smart, dumb guy. Yeah. yeah, He's a very, I think I said this in our posting app, but he's a very smart, dumb guy. Like, you know. And one of the things about intelligence beyond somebody's ability to just i don't know have come from all of the right check marks of like proper schooling etc is this constant curiousness and one one of the things that is obvious about trump is he's an incredibly incurious man yes like he just is uninterested yeah and and that's in the larger world (laughs) yeah and that's why i said cultural markers of smartness right is that it is ultimately like a an aesthetic argument yeah yeah. Uh, like this doesn't look like smartness the way that i think smart and that's why liberals hate rogan yeah that's they they, that's why they hate him because he has he like you said david he's cheated he's cheated his way into fame with his dumb guyness, right? And that's not fair. That's yeah. not playing by the he, rules. He, he, he doesn't, doing, he doesn't uh, even have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Like how he's not even calling his program hardball. What I'm going to tell you, <laughs> God. So like, I can't. Listeners of the show may actually know that I physically cannot. I'm incapable of listening to Chris Matthews <laughs> when he starts talking. I have to like make whatever thing is producing the sound of his voice has to be off for me. We keep a white noise machine. Yeah, you know, like near the television. Like I, I, in case Chris Matthews <laughs> just happens to come on, you know, just flip that thing. It's on. terrible. Like it's really terrible. Um, I have both of the Johns on from no, God Save America. You're not even allowed to do. You're not even allowed to do your fake Chris Matthews voice, David. Because again, <laughs> you know? I cannot. <laughs> All right, sorry for for yeah. no. It's okay. uh, we, we, we don't. Yeah, we don't. We don't like trigger you. It's extremely triggering. On the, the anniversary of your birth. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, so Trump is uh, is going to not be president anymore, right? Because the Senate is, is going to kick him out. Well, finally, hero and uh, liberal savior to us all, John Bolton, is going to come <laughs> forward and uh, give his most damning testimony about how the, uh, the president said some no, no, good, bad, bad things to, you know, a, I don't know, Ukrainian prime minister, or some bullshit. President, reality TV, fellow reality TV yeah, show fe- host. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, so a lot of people were saying that <laughs> Bolton's this- mustache grew three sizes that day. <laughs> <laughs> people were saying that the way that that this vote for witness testimony. So in case you uh, you you have an intact brain and you haven't been following the impeachment, which you know you shouldn't because it's stupid and boring. But if you haven't been following it, uh, Republicans voted against bringing in testimony from John Bolton and others, witness testimony. And so that is essentially like people were saying that that vote would be more important than even the vote to actually like convict because 
that vote would would determine whether or not any Republicans were going to like jump ship. And, and, and did any? Uh, it was for, 49 to 51, I think was the... I'm just really pissed that the uh, president's threat of uh, putting senators' heads on a pike was idle. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> fucking yeah. don't talk that talk unless you're going to walk yeah. that walk. Absolutely. I yeah. agree. If, anything, if you're going to point empty rhetoric at anything, be like, oh, don't make me send you a sheet cake. Oh, <laughs> don't make me send you a sheet cake. I'm so mad at you right now. I might send. I might go to the grocery store and get a sheet cake and send it to you. I might even have to send an edible arrangement. Yeah, if I really yeah, get, I'm really get too pissed. angry. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, literally like with a uh, like a snow shovel with in a pile of gold coins. Like, no, don't make me throw gold coins at you by the shovelful. Oh, don't make me do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, oh, uh, I hate being the loyal opposition so much. Oh, I'm so angry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that Dersh is going in hard in the motherfucking paint. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's. So the argument, Dersh's argument is that uh, it's it's like an even bigger galaxy brain take than like, if the president does it, then it's not illegal, which is if the president feels that it's in his best interest to be reelected, if, if the president feels that it's in the country's best interest for him to be reelected, then he's doing it in the country's interest. And if he's doing it in the country's interest, no crime. There's no crime. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> It's pretty wild. Um, and, and, and GLOVE actually stands for the getting lots of votes illegally. Illegally, <laughs> illegally <laughs> acts. Sorry, sorry. Illegal is spelled with an I. That was good. Yeah, we, should, yeah. we should finish this. Yeah, uh, uh, what is East? Uh, enormously. <laughs> yeah, getting yeah. lots of votes enormously. Yeah, yeah. All right. yeah good. But yeah, so it, for people who don't have the sickness and haven't been, you know, uh, tuned into this, but for whatever reason are listening to our podcast, um, Alan Dershowitz argued that if President Trump's reason for doing this totally corrupt thing where he was restricting military aid to Ukraine in exchange for a public uh, declaration of an investigation into the corruption of the Bidens, which, you know, is on its face, like, Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah, very yeah. obvious that it was corrupt. Like, yeah, it's yeah. very obvious that Joe Biden got his special fail son, like, a super important job that he wasn't qualified for. And Nancy Pelosi was like, yes, let's keep this in the news cycle for as long as possible. Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing Dersh was saying is that if he believes his reelection is trying to be good for everybody, it is good for everybody exactly yeah. and therefore it's not a quid pro quo yeah you know yeah. like uh, that's just doing your job that's just making america great again is getting yourself elected no matter what you have to do and no matter what types of international obligations you may personally obstruct to get your <laughs> political will uh you know like that, yeah. that's uh, that's unimpeachable I think that is a. I think that it's a perfect and very compelling argument for. Look, I, like, and I, I say this yeah. with sincerity. Like, yes, I think that that argument will very much appeal to like the 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 mindset of a person who already supports Trump. Fair, but um, I want to say Exhibit A. Alan Dershowitz called for the uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton, in his heart, knew that having an affair with Monica Lewinsky was in the public interest because it was. In his interest 
in being able to actualize the uh, agenda of, uh, I don't know, bombing fucking Yugoslavia or whatever he was doing at the time. Do you want your president sitting on just a full nut load? (laughs) Yeah. No, you want your president getting that dick sucked daily. His finger is on the button. His finger's on the button. (laughs) He has the fucking nuclear codes. Red red button, blue balls. It doesn't mix. It's bad. You do not. Yeah. Can't have it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And we know Hillary... I might have to take that out. I'm just so fucking mad at Hillary Clinton that uh, I'm willing to accuse her of all kinds of misogynist things at this point. Uh, well, I mean, remember when she was running for New York senator and she was in an interview with Chris Matthews uh, where he asked if uh, New Yorkers uh, should uh, get gay married and she just said no and got booed directly. Yep. Don't need no Rashida Tlaib required. She just got directly booed from the audience because she uh, was against gay marriage. Remember when she was voting, running for senator. Remember when she stayed married to a man who took uh, twenty six trips on the Lolita Express and stayed <laughs> super close friends with a man yeah. uh, who uh, owned and operated the Lolita Express for the purpose of taking very rich Americans and other he- heads of states of other Western countries and bringing them to a private sex island where they raped children. Remember when I- she enslaved? Slaves? What? I'm sorry, rented slaves. She rented <laughs> yeah, she slaves rented from the from state the of state. Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, Whew, that's different. Uh, really? Like, so, in, like, uh, this is in her book. We've talked about yeah. this on the pod before. Uh, it's but worth repeating. It's, yeah, in her book, say it again. Right? Like, in her book, that, yeah, well, I forgot whether it was a terrible book that was ghostwritten for her before she ran for president this last time, uh, said uh, that when she was first lady of Arkansas, her and Bill had prison labor that ran the governor's mansion. Which is slave labor. It's a it's a it's a plantation. <laughs> right? It's like, literally a plantation. It ran the governor's mansion, run by slaves. Yeah, like it's, it's it prison. And she and she says, "I know what you're something to the effect of like I know what you're thinking. I was concerned too. What if they stole something from me? Oh, right. and, yeah. and, and she was like, "Well, I I learned to get comfortable with it because it saved the taxpayers money." Slave because labor does slave save labor. a lot of money. It, it, in her defense, it is very cost effective yeah. to use slaves. Holy that's Hillary shit. Clinton. Holy shit! That is so. Just, so yeah, uh, that's Hillary Clinton. Another friend of Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, Alan Dershowitz. Alan Dershowitz. Yeah, it's all coming together, folks. Yeah, yeah. And once again, for the people who haven't been uh, listening to the pod for a long time, Jeffrey Epstein was plucked from obscurity by the father of our current sitting Attorney General. Who is also overseeing the Fed's investigation of Jeffrey Epstein's untimely demise in the correctional facility in Manhattan. So you're listening to Ironweeds, the official podcast of the True and On podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Sh- shout out to Liz and, and, and Grace. Yeah. Liz Franzak is a fucking angel. And yeah. I, I think that's actually her Twitter bio is a literal angel, but yeah. um, I love her so much. Yeah, no, it's a really great pod. Very, very funny. Go check it out. And also Young Chomsky. Mm. Young Chomsky rules. He's, I, I, so he's, right he's my idol. Like, I, I really... I actually do feel like their podcast production style is something that I sort of aim you aspire to, to. I, yeah, I aspire to. I take it as I aspire as to. a bit of inspiration. Yeah, I, I, their, their I call, editing style. I call the SoundCloud app my Young Chomsky app. Yeah, yeah pretty much. And I, I, do, I don't have a mastery well. of reverb as quite as good as uh, no one Young does. Chomsky does. Y- no one does. So, yeah. Yeah. so 
it's it's like some fucking local CNBC affiliate or something. I don't I don't even remember. But this guy, this you know local reporter, he's in a mall and he's people are walking by and he goes, uh, "Excuse me, would you like to talk about in- income inequality, uh, Miss? Would you would you like to talk about income inequality?" And everybody's walking by and they're like, "No, no, thank you. No, sorry, I have to." Want to talk about wealth inequality? No. All right. The topic may be everywhere on the campaign trail. You want to talk about wealth inequality in America? But off it? Not so much. Hey, you want to talk about wealth inequality? Oh, another time. We'll catch you later. (laughs) So polite. I know. (laughs) Which it's like, it seems, it seems unrealistic because if I would think, I know, Chris, if you saw somebody (laughs) saying like, hey, excuse me, sir, would you like to talk about income inequality? You'd fucking tackle it. (laughs) Would I? (laughs) I just like turn around and I'm like, I'm setting a garbage can on fire and be like, oh, yes, yes, I would like to talk about income inequality. And just like as I'm like stepping it, stomping it out behind me, like, oh, yes, no, I think it uh, like the wealth tax. Oh, it's awful. (laughs) Um, So but so then he's like, but you know what people do like to talk about? pie so we got some free pie here free pie we turned america's economic pie into a real one this is the american pie and found a lot more people willing to address a simple question who gets what and he sets up this make me shut up (laughs) about pie (laughs) cherry pie it's very wholesome and sweet apple pie What's that thing like Best in Show where he's like naming all the different kinds of nuts? He's like, macadamia <laughs> nut. <laughs> Cashew nut. Okay, Pop I'm sorry. Furniture. It's like that, but pie. Okay, continue. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie so much. But it's like that classic. It, this has been done so many times where, you know, you show Americans a pie and you say, okay, how, how much of each sector of the population do you think gets how much pie? And it's, you know, like the very wealthy and blah, blah, blah. People are given pie pieces and all the wrong ways and then at the end he shows them and it's like no the top you know one percent one percent yeah the top 20 percent have nine tenths of the pie and then he's like but how much does the top one percent have of that pie and it's very very wholesome i will uh we can post a link to it yeah, and, 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 then, and like at the like the bottom fifty percent or something, he like literally get crumbs. pushes crumbs pushes off of crumbs the plate. Yeah. <laughs> These guys, they've got about eighty percent of a piece. They get twenty percent of a piece, and then the lower middle class, they've got point three percent of a piece. Yeah, they have some crumbs there. There you go. That's what they get. And the poorest, they have no pie. In fact, they have less than than, than no pie. They have, they actually have a bill for pie. <laughs> They're in pie debt. They owe pie. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then it's just like a bunch of people saying like, oh, wow. No, I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> yeah. It's it like in, in rapid succession. And then, he, yeah. t- and then at the end he says, okay, so if you want to take a piece of pie, who would you like to take it from? And so then, then <laughs> this lady's feeding her child. She goes, here, honey, you want some rich person pie? And she, <laughs> It's very interesting. I have nothing else to offer but pie. <laughs> I'll take it. You can have but at our little table, pie. redistribution oh, was a hit. If I'm going to take a piece, it will be from the excess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll take that pie over there. This pie over yeah. here? You want the rich pie? Yeah. Mm. Pumpkin pie. Rich people pie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really hoping someone would make an eat the rich joke. Yeah, that would have been so easy. But they, well, yeah. they probably did just off camera. You can't yeah, broadcast that. You can't that. put that. You on. can't broadcast can't, people yeah. saying "eat the rich." Yeah, they probably. We can. Why would you want to eat, you wanna but... eat the rich when you can eat pie? <laughs> <laughs> they probably have this pie. Oh, I prefer the pie, but like we should take the rich's money, especially like inherited wealth. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they probably had like a dozen Zoomers 
like, yeah, I want to talk about wealth inequality, and then they like start making a TikTok right there, and they're just be like, I'm gonna fucking eat all the rich people. He's like, my name, my middle name is Joseph Stalin. <laughs> Yeah, the TikTok generation is going pretty hard. Yeah, in the, no, uh, uh, it, we we better create socialism now because you don't want these kids making socialism. They'll <laughs> fucking turn you into Soylent Green, which I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, just sorry. fine. It's, I'm totally for that. That'd be totally yeah, no, absolutely. That. Yeah. That's that's why the yeah. Zoomers will save us but, all, right? But it's like because we be, if we, we don't become, get it done by yeah. the time they're in power, it's just going to be we're all going to be Soylent Green. Yeah, the millennials are the the like the reasonable compromise position of democratic socialism because you don't want these communist zoomers coming in and like killing everyone that makes under 80 uh, over 80k a year so did you see the uh, update to our immigration criteria yeah this is great thank you supreme court why is the supreme court so fucking powerful first of all before we even get into this i think the supreme court is bullshit it's fuck these fucking crazy people just can like hot take we take the whole legislative system hostage in this country. I'm going to cut all this out. Constitutional hot take. Yeah. It turns out <laughs> that you can... Uh, get rid of the fucking Supreme Court. Yeah. Constitutional hot take. Actually, uh, buying elections is cool. And you can dump <laughs> as much money as you want into secret uh, organizations that fund them. Really? Is, is, like, the Supreme Court is just, like, a nine old people writing medium posts. And those medium <laughs> posts become law. <laughs> for no good reason <laughs> right yeah. they're, they're, they just like make an argument uh, after they listen to a couple of people uh argue then yeah. they make their own argument based on those are those arguments and uh in a medium post and that can supersede the other two branches of government it makes no no fucking sense makes no sense and and they're wearing robes the whole time yeah so the uh yeah the supreme court has chosen to allow trump's law it basically expanding the it, it makes it so that if if they think at at any level that you might use a public service right uh that can count that will count against you in their decision to uh let you become a citizen so the idea or immigrate just just immigrate at all right yeah so so in an effort to cut down on hypothetical wards of the state immigrants that would come to the country and then within the country basically be nothing but a burden on public resources as is often the um the way that it's framed yeah yeah the, 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 is, is that you, you're not providing anything we're not investing you at all you're just a leech on the system and why would we invite more people to just yeah, previously uh, the, the, use up all of our beautiful safety net resources previously it was only uh cash assistance programs that were considered as like the criteria for for rejecting people's green cards on this public charge notion was like if you if you were going to have to rely on a cash assistance program but which is stupid like, already right it was like that's all that's already dumb right yeah. yeah exactly um but now it's been expanded to basically any public assistance program at all so like snap benefits snap benefits medicaid yeah imagine heap like something like mm -hmm. helps with your your heating bill just really yeah any, anything that uh would make your life easier if your boss doesn't pay you enough money but they're doing this in a prescriptive sort of pre-crime uh, analysis model, right? They're not accusing, they're not kicking people out immediately for ever receiving these things. They're doing some type of check. No, it's, it's going, yeah, I, it's, it's going to be used to deny people 
So they have to basically look at somebody. But what, what will happen is that even legal immigrants will feel afraid to avail themselves of these services because yeah. they think that it's going to threaten. Like, I think that's part of the design of it. Also, is to give the illusion that it will threaten your immigration status if you take advantage of these these services. The idea that you can prescriptively tell who, upon coming into a country that, like, you know, is very foreign by, by definition to them, that they are going to immediately have economic success and be able to, like, thrive in very expensive living situations, you know, even if they are working, contributing, paying taxes on, on their salary, on their work, et cetera, to, to live here, that, like, how could they possibly be able to tell who's going to succeed and who's not? Like, what, what, what is the basis by which they could, you know, at the border when you're, you know, going through customs and uh, trying to uh, file for uh, legal status or whatever, like any part of the process of immigrating here, like, well, they look at things like your employment history, um, your health, even like all kinds of factors that they basically use to evaluate whether or not they think you'll need this public assistance. Yeah, what, what I'm thinking of when I hear about this is the HB1 visa program that uh, Silicon Valley runs on quite often, where Silicon Valley companies are usually seen as like really helpful to the pro-immigration movement, broadly speaking, because they bring in a lot of people from outside the country, usually management positions, like they, they require a lot of international hiring. And so they're usually very outspoken about keeping the borders open. And uh, I think that this is a good uh, way to split that coalition, whatever, however uneasy it is, is that now, now all these like liberal facing corporations like Google and Facebook and Uber and whatever, you're like now they're like, oh, okay, well, if, immigration is now restricted by class then we can still bring in all the like six figure seven figure engineers and managers that we wanted and that's fine and uh if you're restricting immigration you know based on people that we would never hire in the first place then like you know we're, we don't have a dog in this fight anymore right of course uh i i wouldn't be surprised if you'd have democrats uh defending this proposal already if not in a couple of years once it's normalized and so this is for straight immigration, you know, application as opposed to, you know, uh, people who are coming here in refu seeking refugee status, right? Like this is... The public charge condition is the same thing that was used to deny entry to Jewish refugees. So, I mean, it's not like refugee status can be given or revoked pretty much on the whims of our... And this decision right. came out on Holocaust Remembrance And Day. it did come out yeah. on Holocaust so, Remembrance So cruel, Day. cruel yeah. irony there. Yeah. Trump is an aberration. Yeah, it's not like these concentration camps at the border weren't built by the Obama administration or anything. Right. Yeah. Or that everyone on the court right now has been appointed from like the last like five, four or five presidents. <laughs> so it's like they, you know, it came down five, four. But yeah, I mean, one of the five of that four were probably at least Clinton, probably. We should have a uh, TV program, real, real world style with the entire SCOTUS where they all yeah. have to like live in a house and like, you know, like <laughs> to interact with each other and like Well, when Bernie becomes president, he's going to pack the Supreme Court, right? So yeah. to, to flip the the uh, um, ideology of the court yeah. and it should just be like, and the, re the real power play would be you get like 20 year olds in there, like fresh yeah. out of law school to just make them Supreme Court justices and they all have to live in the same house uh, and you know, you, when, when you know, you stop 
being polite and start getting real yeah, you know, on the Supreme Court. And there's like 20 of them. And like a 26 person Supreme Court, 29 person <laughs> Supreme Court. <laughs> the, the whole idea of the Supreme Court is like people who will ultimately make like value judgments on behalf of, you know, the United States and its constitution, quote unquote. And I want means. those people to be TikTok stars. Yeah. <laughs> I want them- <laughs> like I, want, like I want them to have a TikTok, yeah. and they'll, they'll be like, "Oh, I support this." Ah, <laughs> wouldn't it be like a really good nomination process where we basically just have them go on a reality TV show for like you know five or six uh, episodes, and then everybody can like have a sense of like the different prospects, like reactions to various situations, and be like, "Actually, I think this judge of." situational behavior and reasoning you know it should be on the highest court well this is very dark direct democracy like this like dark mirror yeah we'll 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 leave uh yeah we'll we'll leave either uh courtroom sketches or tiktok videos there's the only two things i can come out of the supreme court and it'll be like (laughs) redipredact versus scabbard (laughs) in the case redipredact versus scabbard people who actually watch tiktok will know what that means i don't yeah yeah, save yeah from that joke yeah, yes. no, I watch some TikToks, but I don't. I don't think I know. We're tempered X scabbard, Mashmirga. <laughs> no, nothing. No, nothing. No, I'm sure I don't it registered know. with some fans though. Yeah, no. Somebody some people I connected with, right like now. two people, like really deeply in that moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Those two people were not you. <laughs> I'm starting to figure out TikTok culture. There's a girl that does, that has like a bunch of uh, white tree frogs and uh, African bullfrogs, and she like puts them in the bathtub. That's frog mom. I like yeah, frog, frog mom. mom. Yeah, yeah. She, she's pretty cool. Mama frogs. I yeah. think. Is... And that that uh, <laughs> that that guy from England that does um, uh, Mary, I love like him. like updated Jane Austen yeah. stuff, where it's like I don't want to be a thought anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We've thrown it back at every Christmas. <laughs> I can't listen to you do impersonations of TikTokers, David, and I can't I can't expose our our listeners to that either. All right. All right. So really what what this makes you kind of think about in your darkest moments, right, is that connect this to climate change, right? Where you have hundreds of thousands of climate refugees on your border and you don't let them in based on the fact that they are refugees, right? They're sick and yeah. they're poor and they're going to need your help. Yeah. yeah. Like our borders are open, of course. But if you want to, you know, like be a participant in our economy and not a drain on it. So like, you know, some some Norwegian that wants to be like the atta- attache of culture and technology at Alphabet, you know, like they, they can they can definitely do that in the year 2030. But uh, but yeah, like no one else that actually wants something. It, in, can come in. As we pointed out in previous episodes, the people who are most exploited, the people who are most exploitable and exploited uh, in this society, like the you know the recent immigrants and and etc., are the people who are creating the greatest amount of surplus value back into the rest of the economy. And like the idea that we we would view people as wards of the state, you know, um, like who like would fall on hard times between trying to find jobs. Like I don't know, it's. It's offensive and, and frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the idea of like, as you're saying, the 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 whole quote unquote scarcity mindset around there's only so much, you know, we can have and we got to like close off and we're going to build a wall and we're going to have an idea of like, no, we're the righteous people who like deserve like the spoils of this world and 
we're going to keep, you know, living it the way we want and we're going to say fuck everybody else and they're going to like have to stay out because we're going to militarize our borders and like force them out unless they're going to be prosperous citizens that help us like in some specific way that, we're, you know, we deem appropriate. It, it, it's it's a very uh, scary mindset. Um, that- it's lifeboat politics, right? You know, it's just like people just deciding, you know, w- w- which group of people will just keep us alive a little bit longer. Right. It's not uh, about like building a society of like post scarcity. It's about like, uh, you know, like, are, are you going to uh, keep us alive tomorrow? Uh, and if you don't like, well, you know, like we need to kick you out to save ourselves. And, you know, the point of the lifeboat scenario, like, who would you want to have in the lifeboat with you is that you're always wrong. Like, yeah, it's ne- right, like right. you know, you are not going to pick the right people to be in that lifeboat with you. And it's bizarre to me because, like, a, a capitalist economy depends on the incredibly poor and easily exploited. I guess maybe... And it always profits from their interaction with the economy. Exactly. Like, that's why <laughs> when you hear liberals say, like, immigrants are good for the economy, like, you know what? They are. They're right. Because poor people are good for the economy. Because capitalism depends on having lots and lots of people who, you know, can't afford to quit their shitty job when you treat them like absolute trash because they require that job to live. And they also need a reserve army of unemployed people to threaten you with, right? Like you could be one of the unemployed. Exactly. Yeah. So if if you had full employment, then you wouldn't have anything to, uh, to, to scare people with. Yeah. It's a long way to go from, from here, but you know, one of the more recent developments that I think is noteworthy and. And it's know. and it's not sticking in the headlines at all. Is this the fact that the Supreme Court has decided that if you're poor, you don't get to be an immigrant? Yeah. To this country. Yeah. The whole we should. Are they also saying we should scrub from the um, Statue of Liberty? Send us your poor, right. your huddled masses yearning for freedom, and uh, say, uh, actually, fuck you. Just send your engineers, your doctors. Your, you know, business um, uh, associates. Send us your wealth managers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that this is just an extension of the Castle Doctrine as it relates to uh, the nation state. This is one of the reasons that we talked about, you know, in previous episodes, I um, call myself an anarchist, is I know that there's a difference between internationalist and anarchist, but in, me, in my mind, they are, you know, they, they work really well together, which is to say that we live on one rock that's, you know, floating through the vacuum of space. Potentially, as far as we can tell through any material evidence, the only spot in this entire cosmos that has complex life and is capable of maintaining it. Flat and, disk. And we have, and, and so, or we're living, you know, if you want to be a flat earther for a yeah, moment, yeah. We're, we're living in an encased um, uh, hemidome. The firmament. In, yeah, with the firmament. Yeah, yeah. And we have one atmosphere which is uh, drastically changing its chemical composition, which is changing the pH of the entire oceans, and is it's holding more heat in itself, and it's also changing the energy exchange of the planet and the solar system. You know, because in a closed system, the only way energy goes in and out is light. The change of our atmosphere is changing the amount of energy coming in versus the amount of energy going out. So net, we're just slowly heating up. And that that's a really big, crazy, important thing. And it sort of trumps, like, everything else in terms of, like, urgency and extremity of urgency. Like, we're talking about potentially, like, the extinction of all complex life, like mammalian life, like on the Earth, like a thousand years from now. 
unless like we make drastic changes as to what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what we could do in the alternative. But then and, like, we turn to Venus, and <laughs> Venus was a queen. <laughs> slay, queen, yes. climate change. Yeah. <laughs> yes, slay. So anyway, this, the, the situation that we find ourselves in is, ir- sorry, regardless of the, what <laughs> nation we find ourselves in and what government is ruling over us. And we all have like a very s- similar stake in all of the material aspects of like sharing this little tiny rock that's rocketing through the vacuum of space. And it's the collective survival and well-being of all people, as far as I could tell. And to go about that in any serious project is to sort of necessitate just ignoring nation states and laws and borders and just figuring out how we materially actually get our shit together and take care of one another and like survive as a species. And if that isn't like a common sense moral directive, I don't understand. It's because of all these fictitions and, and, um, superstitions and of importance of nation and, and law and order or whatever else. It's like the, the primary directive should be like, we should look at the material reality we were in and figure out how we can take care of it and each other and like survive. And if there's very strong material evidence, which has cons- wide consensus by the experts in the field that we're headed toward apocalypse, <laughs> you know, in the long term, and like there's stuff we could do about it now. It's like we need to figure out how to do that. And I don't know, like... Okay, Tom Steyer. Yeah. So, the Castle Doctrine is basically, we're going to take our little piece of the pie and our material resource gaining, you know, apparatus that spans the whole globe. We're going to keep all those things going. And if you try to disrupt either the sanctity of our imaginary borders and, like, come in and pretend you're just one of us when we haven't, like, properly cleared you as one of us, like... We're not going to let that fly. We're not going to let that fly at like the point of, you know, a physical barrier and, and weapons eventually. And like, that's like, unfortunately, one direction we could take. And that's ecofascism. Like eventually Trump's doctrine of like, keep everybody out. We got to take care of ours is going to be applied to the climate change crisis and wide support, yeah. I think. And that's going to be really scary. And the alternative to that is eco-socialism which is to say that we have to prioritize the society that we're living in, fulfilling our needs, as well as the long-term viability of future societies to continue to live and fulfill their needs. And 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 you already see that on the Democratic Party when this is my favorite flavor of liberalism, where they're like, we don't need a wall. That's stupid. We need a smart wall that is made out of drones and computers. And And hellfire (laughs) missiles. Yeah, and hellfire missiles. And and we're like, that's really what we need. We don't need to build a physical wall. That's what dumb people think. And like, that is such a weird reaction to have is that like you're just a disgusting like a a, um you're 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 vulgar in your politics because you want an actual physical wall when clearly the like the polite politics is having an invisible wall made out of robots and computers (laughs) and and, and we're taxing the the taxpayer at a hundred and twenty thousand dollars plus um uh you know benefits in terms of cost to put these uh troopers out there on the border when we can just use amazon and drones yeah. To go tip over the water buckets <laughs> that people have voluntarily laid out for these people to not die in the desert. Yeah. So that they do die in the desert. And we can do that all for like 
$20,000 a year with a fleet of 41 advanced, you know, quadcopter uh, dehydration murdering, uh, you know, drones. You got to <laughs> disrupt the immigrant murder industry. <laughs> Boop. This has been really funny. Okay, so I have something. This is our wildflower, but it's probably the most political wildflower we've had. But it is a wildflower. It qualifies as a wildflower. <laughs> All of our because, wildflowers are political. Yeah, but this is the most like, like overtly, I feel like political. Last week, our but, wildflower was a Christian anarchist. But yeah. go on, go off, King. It's good. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, okay, so, I mean, the, the, <laughs> okay. Well, what, what I guess I, I mean is that it's going to take a while to get to the wildflower part. So I'll just say it up front, and then we're going to get to it. Is that this ends with the state taking something from a rich person and turning it into public transit infrastructure. So that's why it qualifies as a wildflower. Hell yeah. But, um, but before, yeah, <laughs> but before we get to that, it's going to seem like a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> All right. So the, the, um, the players in this, uh, um, story are David Bryce. He is a, one of the largest, uh, landowners in downtown Troy. He owns quite a bit of uh, office and mostly office, some uh, residential. And what becomes really important is a 800 space parking garage in the center of downtown Troy that uh, one, uh, the latest um, traffic study, I think pegged it at, yeah, it's 18% of all off street parking in the city is this one parking garage. I have never once parked in it. Oh, I've parked in it so many times. Yeah. So, farmer's so, market? Yeah. So this parking garage is attached to a 70s era mini mall that is called the Atrium. So it's, it's only like a city block. It's like a, a very short city block sized. It's very, it's very tiny. And connected to it is a, is this, um, it's actually technically 751 vehicle spaces. Uh, parking garage that's a lot of spaces so it's many spaces it was built in 2010 or sorry it was built in the 1970s and um i don't know if it was instantly given it to the city or it was like it was owned by the city like when it was built but if that wasn't the case it was probably in the 80s that um this mini mall and parking garage were owned by the city outright up until 2010 when the parking garage and later the atrium itself was bought by David Bryce for $2.4 million. He got the, uh, I think that's just the price of the parking garage. Yeah, the garage got sold to Bryce in 2010 for $2.4 million. And, you know, you, you have to pay to be a long-term uh, parker in that garage. It's only free on weekends. So, like, it's, it's something that he makes rents off of. It's in the center of downtown Troy. It's, it's a moneymaker for him. And it is falling apart like literally falling apart. Like back in November, a beam just fell down and the Bryce's engineer said that it was a secondary non-structural beam. <laughs> wow. Uh, so don't worry. It doesn't mean that the thing is falling apart. It's just falling apart aesthetically. This was a, a beam that wasn't load bearing. It's just a beam for the sake of, I don't know why you'd have a, I guess, it's a decorative, or, beam. Right, it's a, a decorative <laughs> ornamental concrete beam. That doesn't make any fucking sense. But yeah, I feel like in a parking garage, I, I look, I'm not an engineer and I'm sure that there's a perfectly good engineering like 
explanation for why one beam is more important than another in a parking garage. But I do not believe that parking garages are composed of decorative <laughs> beams, that it's right? okay if yeah. they fall down. A secondary beam. <laughs> <laughs> that is not necessary for the overall structural integrity of, of the of the facility. Yeah. So um so now I'm gonna go back in time a little bit, give you a little bit of a of a timeline of of what's going on. Because what what's interesting is that the regional transportation authority building some bus rapid transit lines have been reported out and so have been these the structural integrity of the parking garage both these are two completely separate stories that have been reported out pretty well by the local news but when you put them together we put the timeline together something very interesting happens and i haven't seen anyone like actually put these two things together so this will be interesting all right so in 2014 the Capital District Transit Authority, that's another player in the story, right? It's a, a transit authority that runs in several counties around the Capital District, uh, encompassing Albany, Rensselaer, Saratoga, and I think Green counties. Run all, the, run all of the buses through all these different cities. And right now we have one bus rapid transit line that goes, oh, yeah, to Schenectady. So Schenectady County, all the way to downtown Albany. It, it's... um. It, it, it's a it has frequent service it is um fast and in a fairly popular bus rapid transit uh system it's a pretty good bus system yeah. and they're going to expand this bus rapid transit to two more lines uh one that goes uh, out west from albany again but like a little further to the south and then a uh, a blue line which is going to run south north and south uh in the first of its kind and it'll start in the, the southernmost part is uh, almost in um, New Scotland, you know, like a, like very very South Albany, and it goes all the way up to Waterford, crossing the Hudson, crossing the Hudson twice, right? So it's it's really big, and one of the main hubs is going to be in Troy, and uh, the CDTA in 2014 said that part of their tra- in part of their transit development plan called for a transit center to be located in downtown Troy, and they determined that the optimal location for such a facility is in this Uncle Sam, the parking garage, which is called the Uncle Sam parking garage, because everything around here is named... Fucking Uncle, Uncle Sam. Sam. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we the, love him. Yeah, the, 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 the best war profiteer this country has ever seen. We love him. And right. I can't believe we're actually fighting with other cities over whether or not we get Uncle Sam. Like, Jesus, who gives yeah. a shit? Yeah. So, the, um, so this... Uh, got his body, that's yeah. all that counts. <laughs> so this uh, bus rapid transit facility would uh, include about 1,000 to 1,500 square feet uh, a fully enclosed climate-controlled waiting area. Nice. That's, I, I don't, that's not really anywhere else in the CDTA system. It's yeah. like a climate-controlled bus stop. It would have exclusive bus access in that area for the buses. They'd be going in the opposite direction of car traffic. Uh, it would have a customer service outlet um, and uh, um, bathrooms, which is Public pretty bathrooms. Incredible. Yeah. Public bathrooms. Wow. Well, it, it might just be bathrooms for the drivers, which they don't have. It'd be a step um, up. Yeah, but, but it, it could possibly be for the public. In fact, it, it, the, the way that the report says it is bathrooms for drivers and possibly for the public. Is the way that the report says it. Uh, and CDTA in December of 2015 was awarded $650,000 by the state to make this station. This, How much? That's not much money. $650,000. Well, so, so that's that, not that much well, money well, to, well, to make well, a well, they don't really have, I mean, like, they have to do a lot of facade work. 
And it's probably a lot of $650,000 is like enough to do like site analysis. And, oh, okay. and so it's probably, and usually those sorts of grants have to be met by the person applying for the grant. Yeah. So they, so the CDTA probably said, we're really, we're willing to put up a million dollars if you give us 650 yeah. or something like that. Uh, so, so they, they win this grant. Uh, in 2016, uh, they wanted to break ground on this transit center. So, the ne- very next year. And Bryce is described in the business, um, it was like Albany Business Insider, I think it's called. Oh, that was in the record. It's in the Troy record. He's described as an eager participant in this uh, transit thing. Because, which makes sense, right? If you're a private owner of a building, you uh, the best tenant you could have is the state. You, to get lease payments from the state. Right. Is, is a, it's a, a golden cat or a goose lays a golden egg right you know it's, it's awesome so um so while he so bryce was initially supportive of the transit center but later changed his mind because of concerns about losing some parking spaces in the garage with and the new bus route that he thought would be confusing near the thing that he wants to do with the atrium which is next door he wanted to turn it into like a like an innovation hub, I think he calls it or something like that. So he thinks people are going to get confused by a street where cars go in the opposite direction, which is called like literally every street, right? <laughs> so it's like right now it's a one way and he thinks people will flip out because they'll oh, turn it into a two way, but one of the ways <laughs> will only be for buses. So that's yeah, I don't, fucking crazy. I, I don't understand why people have been, I, even on yeah. like the subreddit, the Troy subreddit, people were like, well, they're going to turn Fulton into a, into a two way street. And it's like, all right, well, but Troy's full of two-way streets. Like, there's, yep. it's just this happens to be a two-way street where one lane is just for buses. But yeah. the only way to get into that lane is to, like, come out of, like, the bus exit Deep, yeah. spot. So yeah, it's so like, it's not, it's not like you'll even... accidentally be in the bus lane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like it's... yeah, it's ridiculous. So, um, Bryce would lose, uh, it looked like, a grand total of 22 spaces in a 751-space facility. He would lose 22 spaces to build this um, bus facility. Huh. And, and because of that, he uh, didn't want to do it. He was like, he started backing out of this yeah, so bus facility because he would lose 22 spaces. It should be said right now that David Bryce, by trade, is an architect. And architects, uh, I've, I, I know some architects. I have some very good friends that call themselves architects. For the most part, architects are like self-centered uh, visionary assholes, right? Like Frank Lloyd Wright was known to like visit uh, homes that he designed and move around people's furniture because he said that they were doing it wrong. <laughs> like they, they said that he was saying like they like he furnished they were furnishing their own homes wrong based on his architecture. When I right? when I was and this, at, is, this is David Bryce energy. When I was yeah. at RPI working in the writing center, I worked with two different architects on their dissertations, and they were the most pretentious, annoying people I've ever had to interact with period yeah i've had really good luck with architects i've uh we we hired at Ecubative two architects to uh be basically engineers product designers and uh everything else and like the skills that you actually learn hands-on in architecture school are very similar to the skills you need to be able to like put together prototypes or like physically assemble like you know wrap your mind around a lot of like the the, the things that you have to do for a lot of actual engineering because they make models yo. yeah yeah no they do <laughs> they, like they, they make mad they, models they, they love models yeah and yeah but they they were really talented and they they figured out how to do all types of fab and and really detail craftsmanship stuff that was very helpful for a uh aspiring biotech company yeah no absolutely i like i like 
I envy architects in a lot of ways and like how they're able to like force people to like work with their art. Right? Right, it's, fine. It's I hate like, architects. I'm yeah. the only one yeah. on the podcast who hates <laughs> architects. Well, it's basically, fine. They're, they're, really basically, they're basically artists that are somehow empowered to make people interact with their art. And, and that's, and that's probably why they're on such a power trip. So anyway, so <laughs> David Bryce, who's a developer, but an architect by trade, um, is doing an architecture ism and like being an asshole about, uh, over, uh, like a sniveling difference at like 22 spaces. Well, that would put him at, uh, what, 729? Yeah. Spaces? Yeah. yeah. That's too few spaces. <laughs> well, well, right. well, well, so here's a great thing about like what happens when you sell a, pro- a public property to a private developer is um, he admits um, that he oversells that parking garage 150%. Oversells in what yeah, way? He over, like, how, like, how like he, he, gives, he gives more, he sells more parking permits than there are parking. Oh, spaces. really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, that's what you does do it ever biz. get full yeah. during like hours? I no. Well, I think that's how he can do it. Is that like people yeah, yeah. Oh, buy them at different times? So like, if you yeah. live downtown, you get a parking. Yeah, permit. I, that doesn't seem like a scam. This is what I don't understand. So you're parking in the evening, and people that work downtown are parking. This is why I don't understand the like the the his beef is that I've never seen that parking garage full ever. Not once. Well, it, it, I have seen it pretty full because uh, I always go when everyone else goes, which is in the winter market. So I go to the winter market probably every other Does the other parking garage week. like completely fill up? Yeah. Oh, okay. If you're, if you're there like peak hours, like 10, 30 but, or so. But that's, but that's like when it's free. Full. Right. I yeah, mean, when it's, when free. it's. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's what I mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I don't think that in terms yeah. of parking okay. permits. They, I'm sorry, David. I keep derailing you. Okay. So, so here's, here, so this is the, this is when like putting these two stories together is interesting. Apart, they seem like innocuous dates, but when you put them together, this becomes pretty interesting. So remember, in 2016, Bryce says that he's an eager participant in this uh, CDTA facility taking up space in his parking garage. And it is quite likely that he knew when he's calling himself an eager participant, this would take up 22 spaces because they basically had a plan and they showed it to him. Like when, when they report... Uh, eager participant they have like a like the the lead image in the report is uh it is like the mocked up Mm. uh, bus facility but in 2017 bryce wins a four million dollar state grant to build more offices retail and parking as part of a 20 million dollar quote-unquote innovation district that he wants to create to serve the growing professional firms in his buildings so i can't there's no way to like like confirm this but what it sounds like to me is that bryce was waiting for the state to either give him six hundred and fifty thousand dollars or so for this facility but he also had a grant proposal out for four million dollars and he got the four million dollars and so now he doesn't want to do the six hundred and fifty hundred thousand dollar one he wants to do the four million dollar option and right. they're, and they and they are mutually exclusive. Like you know, you can't, or at least according to he thinks that he probably is thinking that buses don't sync up with cool, uh, dynamic districts of innovation, or that maybe yeah. a new parking garage that you build will perform better if people have to drive downtown instead of taking a very a nice, bus. convenient yeah. bus option. Right. Well, so so he, uh, the reason that he um, has been keeping this whole thing up, and they were ready to break ground in 2016. So they were ready, like, after, as soon as this was launched, that they're like, this is a shovel-ready project. But it's been held up now for almost four years because Bryce is 
just doesn't agree with the designs. And his architect brain is like, no, I can do this better than this uh, public organization that has spent already hundreds of thousands of dollars in site studies and feasibility plans. Like, no, I know better because I'm an architect. And so he, he wants to put the buses on somewhere else. And he thinks that it's it, like th- their plans uh, interfere with his innovation district plans but see see, so like this is interesting because before they were they're they're never reported together but when you put the timeline together in these two different stories about him wanting to redo the atrium and this uh bus rapid transit facility you see that it's really just bryce playing both sides and he just want and it turned out this four million dollar innovation district just gives him more money than the CDTA bus, and so now he wants to pull out of the CDTA bus thing, unless it's on specifically on his terms. Right. So, mm-hmm. so now, and and now bringing that to present is that in November of 2019, so this past November, the city issued Bryce quote an appearance ticket for failing to provide the state a required engineering assessment that was due uh, in the what they say is in the fall. This is, uh, I I think, the Times Union. And so now, in December, uh, Troy City leaders say it is reviewing a draft copy that they recently received of that engineering assessment. But, like, it's it's months late. And And he's been ticketed for it. This is the engineering assessment of the current state of his parking garage property that is, um, like... Literally falling apart. Yeah, invisible disrepair. Yeah. And, um... Uh, uh, it's so bad, in fact, that the New York State Public Employees Federation, the PEF, um, on December 14th, put out a statement actually saying that um, staff and union leaders are concerned about the conditions of the garage and that um, the garage are a danger to... The conditions of the garage are a danger to state workers and the public who utilize the garage on a regular basis. That was put out by the union, the Public Employees Federation, which is a big... um, uh, office leaser in the atrium so mm-hmm. like, if, like m- most of the office space in the atrium is taken up by the department of labor which is represented by the pef so last fr- as of last friday city officials said they received a final condition assessment from the garage owner's engineer bryce's engineer that says the report included general safety concerns with the garage but did not provide the necessary information to satis- satisfy questions and concerns raised by city staff so they closed it again so this garage is now um closed and and, um they've since reopened it but in the meantime uh cdta won uh one of many appeals it went all the way up to like the state supreme court uh that they now got a court order compelling bryce to sell that one part of the atrium to CDTA to make their uh, bus facility for $387,000. So now he has to sell part of his $2.4 million garage for only $387,000 to CDTA so they can make their bus uh, facility that is all that he made three years late. Because they were ready to build it in 2016. I see. So the, the the money wasn't ever to actually build the facility. Like that's going to cost a lot. Um, but it was to pay off uh, Bryce. And so th- yeah. this new uh, thing is going to get. So this new uh, uh, proposal that they have, or is it? Are they straight up? They just 
are going to be able to do this. They're going to be able to force yeah. them. Um, is to get what half the garage? Like what cut in half? Like no, it's certain... not even half the it's garage. 20, it's twenty twenty two spaces. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember where um, center of gravity used to, was the fir- very first time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that. Oh, they're buying that off track betting. Yeah, it's where the OTB used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're buying that and um it, it plus 22 spaces oh. and, and then all of the lanes around it would be going in the opposite direction that they currently go now and they and you would lose uh um uh on street parking oh man i'm gonna have on to Fulton. look at this as it relates to being a cyclist yeah. going downtown because yeah it, no that that, 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 is, that is important although cdta is usually pretty good with yeah cycling but like it, they, they connect that pretty closely to uh the bus work yeah, yeah. so but if they have like a yellow line and i know it's going to be opposite traffic i'm not just yeah. gonna die <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it will require a double yellow line uh, oh, okay. all, all the way around so and buses going in one direction and uh regular traffic going in the other well cool yeah so uh the state effectively um compelled a very rich uh slumlord in the city of troy to uh sell uh part of his falling apart parking garage so yeah that's probably for, like give not money great, for it we should just be able yeah. to <laughs> we should be able to just take it we should just be able to <laughs> fucking expropriate that expropriate. shit well, yeah. so but the, the the thing about uh now having the the public transit authority having part of this like derelict building like, yeah it, it, that's like uh, well yeah well yeah so so like, this is the other thing is that i think yeah. that bryce um like this parking garage started going to shit yeah when the, everything started falling apart with this uh, um, uh, deal for the CDTA facility, because prior to that, he built a whole second, like, extra story on this parking garage. Like, he was putting money into the parking garage, and now ever since he's been fighting the CDTA for this facility, he's just stopped doing maintenance on it altogether. Like, there was a, a story in NBC... Uh, the local NBC af- affiliate where someone had found a gaping hole in the parking garage <laughs> covered by a road cone. It was just a hole straight through to the, ne- the, the, next, the next level. Door, the next yeah. level. What? Like, like th- this thing like is, is falling concrete, apart. So like that can happen from time to time, especially if somebody's have... going to die in there. <laughs> yeah. Like oh, that's incredibly <laughs> dangerous. Oh, yeah, I, know, I, I, I shouldn't I, laugh. Like this will be used against me I know. If, if, well, in the future. I, it actually is a engineering Oh, no, I, I forgot um, this great quote from our fearless uh, mayor leader. Um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, shit. I thought it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> great wildflower. <laughs> now I'm just like really stressed out about this building. Well, you know what? Hopefully, if it does fall down and somebody dies, then it'll make a good episode of, well, there's uh, your problem for yeah. a friend of the pod, Justin Rosniak. Yeah. Okay, so uh, WNYT, uh, the NBC affiliate. Channel 13 here asked our fearless leader, Mayor Madden, uh, do you think that the garage is safe for people to park in? And he goes, yep, I do. <laughs> and then he late, but then he later says our engineers reviewing the report. Now the, the, uh, Bryce's engineers report, uh, for completeness and to see if it raises any further questions for us. And then the reporter says, uh, you know, like mentions that like a beam fell down and, and like someone could have died here, no? Like that. Oh, like, because, that they because of somebody, yeah. Because a beam fell down, and Mayor Mayor Madden says, "Well, if they were in the wrong spot at the wrong time, <laughs> sure, that's a heavy beam." 
Where's the lie? Where's the lie, right? Yeah, it was like, wow, that God, you're such a like a smooth brain idiot. It was like, like it was so yes, it, was like, it is a danger to people. And like, like it, it's a dangerous facility. It's literally falling apart. There's a hole in the ground. Water's falling through it. It's concrete. It's exposed concrete with rusting rebar being exposed to uh, like temperatures fluctuating like 20 degrees within 24 hours. Yeah. It's falling apart. Like the thing is fucking falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. And it, to the point that even like your uh, like corrupted Sinclair broadcasting owned like NBC affiliate is saying like this is obviously dangerous like parts of it are falling down he's like yeah no it's safe yep it's fine yeah <laughs> but <laughs> and like the, the 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 union for the largest employer that uses the garage is like saying that it is a danger to everyone to the public yeah and like your and your mayor is just like no i park in it all the time it's like it's like when barack obama went to flint michigan and like sipped water and he's like no this is fine it's it's the same thing. It's that total. It's that. Wait, Barack Obama didn't drink the Flint water. Oh did yeah, he? he did. He, he did? absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah, he went to Flint, I, Michigan. I, no, but he, was, that was he like wasn't saying EPA it's fine. That, no, that he was. That. He he was giving a speech and he goes, you know, actually talking. He made it like a joke. He's like, actually talking has made me pretty thirsty. And he like takes a glass of water and he's like, I have this glass of Flint water. And he drank, and he just took like Obama a, did. Yeah, like his wa- his lips like touched the water and then he put it back down and he's like, it's safe. I did. I don't remember this. I, I fucking did that. I have to look that up. That's that's horrific. Because I, I remember there being a big uh, snafu, but I thought it was like the EPA director or whatever, like did it for a publicity stunt, and he's like, actually, it's fine or whatever. When they were in that the- happened too. There have been lots of drinking water, <laughs> yeah. uh, drinking the water, yeah, on camera. No. Like, yeah. So I mean, the 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 I like it. Yeah, it, it kind of sucks that the state has to pay. Like nearly four hundred thousand dollars for a falling horseshit. apart piece of uh, parking garage, but Bryce doesn't like that he that like it's being taken from him, and that's cool. And so this is still for only the twenty two space equivalent. Yep. Yeah, that is the old way OTB too plus much the old to, OTB to plus twenty two spaces. Yeah, well, I uh, guess yeah. The, yeah, the old. OTB. Which I feel like the OTB is the old OTB is a bigger loss for him than the yeah, spaces are, right? That, that's because yeah. that's a that's a potential business for anything. Yeah, I mean, it was an OTB forever, right? Uh, for anybody, so that's off track betting for folks who don't know. Yeah, so we have um, Saratoga in the capital region, which is like a yeah, big people horse, bet on the horse races. Horse race, I think it's horrible. Yeah, <laughs> I think horse racing is horrible. Yeah, I think you're right, and I dislike that I live in a place where it's so popular. Yeah, yeah. I think it's terrible we used to have the, they, you couldn't horse race in florida, florida it was illegal so they had greyhound races even worse yeah jesus bad. Yeah. just race yourselves people yeah how about you Your go have a fucking too. race what are <laughs> you getting a race <laughs> yeah I, I think that every uh, social club should put up uh it's two champions that should be the uh the local betting everyone just you know bets on the you know, the gladiatorial. Yeah, races. like Chris, you know, the, you're gonna have to represent Ironweeds. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah like, we're not gonna. I would love. I love not, to rep- be representative uh, of the James Connolly Social Club. Yeah, yeah that'd go. be yeah. cool. We should bet on on drone racing. <laughs> that, that would be so fucking cool. I would. Yeah, I, would I would watch the shit it, out of that. It's that a good time, cool. folks. I don't know if everybody yeah. uh, knows, but I am a fucking techno geek, and I build drones and I race them. I'm really bad at racing them because I mostly fly them for the fun of being like in a first person perspective. You're doing like drone gymnastics. Uh, Brittany, you remember? um, Do you remember Finn? Yeah. 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 
uh, uh, my uh, my roommate when Brittany and I first started uh, dating, uh, my roommate bought or um, adopted a, a a greyhound that used to race and named it Finn. And my most potent memory of that dog is it getting diarrhea and like basically <laughs> shitting on me. Yeah, yeah. He's like a a, gray, a greyhound. Like its butthole is like at waist height for me. <sighs> Like, yeah, you know, I, hang on, they're five, huge dogs. I'm five four, and this uh, thing is like it's basically a bird. Like it's a dog <laughs> built like a bird, and it's really it's got like just it's all legs, and it, and it just sits on and like this tiny body sits on top of these giraffe legs, and uh, and they and they're just like sick all the time because they're <laughs> bred to they're just bred to go fast. And nothing else at the expense of everything else about yeah, his living. Their poor body. little bodies yeah. and minds are just yeah. like so fucked up. So oh, it'll really? just like get diarrhea every once in a while. And one time it did, and I was like right behind it, and uh. it was just like this like super soaker of brown shit just like flied out of its butthole. Um uh, but it was a very sweet dog. It was he, he was <laughs> other, a very sweet that, dog. Was he was so afraid of everything. Yeah. All I mean, I yeah. felt I felt terrible for that fucking dog because yeah. it was just so afraid of everything all the time. Greyhounds, you have to also put like tape on if you have sliding glass doors. You have to put tape on it because they're so dumb and their eyesight is so bad that they won't notice that it's not just a big hole in the wall. And they can run so fast, and their bones are so light that they can kill themselves. They can kill themselves they can running just into run sliding into glass a doors. Gla- a glass door and just shatter its head and die and instantly die <laughs> that's what a great that's that's what we've done to greyhounds it's not species. the racing of them that i think is it's necessarily wrong it's existence. their existence it's <laughs> like, like the fact that they're a dog is yeah. wrong yeah it's like their bones are practically hollow yeah 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 so anyway so you're about to hear <laughs> chapter four of if you so choose you're about to hear chapter four of the conquest of bread um on Fuck! I don't. Was it, what is this chapter on expropriation? Is that this? Yeah, I don't even remember. It, so it's broken up it's been... uh, into a bunch of like subsections, right? So this is the first chapter on expropriation, which is uh, basically the argument of why expropriation has a moral foundation, yes. which is that all great fortunes come from one thing: the grinding of the face of the poor. Um, so the poor built the parking garage. The poor made David Bryce rich, and then. Uh, we expropriate the parking garage from David Bryce uh, for the good of the poor yeah. to take the bus. And, and I should say, when I say poor, it's like we're talking about like the most binary like type of breakdown you could have. It's everyone that every, isn't Bill Gates. Yeah. Everybody that doesn't just own the the things that keep our economy running and they profit from owning them. Yeah, like which is everybody pretty much, except for a, a few. So there's sort of two parts to like there are two major parts of this chapter that stand out to me the the um the very polemic description of from whence wealth comes to me is really key because it's a moral argument that is at the foundation of anything left of liberal liberalism whether you're a socialist or a communist or or an anarchist is like Wealth comes from exactly one place, and that is the exploitation of those with less than than you. There's no other way to become rich. If you have something you did not earn, it is because you took it from someone else. Or taking from the land directly, like minerals or like logging or, you know. Right. Yeah. But even then, at least through your own labor. Yeah. yeah. Um, And then the second 
part is sort of why Kropotkin feels that expropriation has to happen all at once everywhere, because otherwise it causes these sort of systems failures across industries, right? If you don't, if you, you know, expropriate the, um, the manufacturer, but not the land under it or, or vice versa and how it all, but to me, that's less of a compelling argument because again, I think a part of that's just the ways that the world has changed now is that I don't think like what, what Kropotkin is talking about is going to result in a massive upheaval regardless. I don't know that it would be any better or any worse if it happens one industry at a time, but, um, yeah, it's still a good, I hope it's a good listen. It was a fun read. I felt things while I was reading it. I hope that you as a listener experience those things that I felt while you listened to it. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that what you, um, you know, the, the idea that you have to take everything all at once makes me think of is, um, you know, if, if, uh, you, the listener aren't familiar, you know, um, there's a, a reoccurring series in Troy called the James Connolly forums. It's a totally different thing from the social club that we've mentioned before, but the forums, you know, invites people, uh, to talk about, um, invite speakers to uh, give a, a lecture about something particularly interesting. And we recently had uh, Jody Dean uh, on a mar- uh, um, and uh, uh, the author of uh, most recently uh, Comrade, which is a really excellent book you should pick up. But she, um, uh, I got to have drinks with her afterward and Jody Dean and I were trying to talk about or trying to figure out like, how would you seize something like Facebook? Like what, what what where does facebook physically reside and how could you exp- how could you even expropriate it in any of the way that we commonly know about how to expropriate capitalists means of of wealth accumulation and it's actually pretty hard like that's something that i think maybe like fundamentally has to change about the theory of um property expropriation is that, that now we have things that can instantaneously move in physical geography from one place to another. So if you grab one data center, you all you've grabbed like some hardware, but not necessarily the data within it, which is actually the most valuable part. Right. You know, it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a fascinating um, problem to have. But so I, I think that's why reading conquest red right now is uh, even if you disagree with it is like, so important right now is, is that like it, it raises at least questions and problems that, maybe it doesn't have the answer to but are uh incredibly relevant yeah yeah so uh if you want to hear the whole thing all together once it's completed instead of at the end of every episode you got to become a patreon subscriber well, i don't we think doesn't even it. exist yet but someday yeah, it will yeah, yeah. yeah it will. but, we, but we'll, it'll go first and foremost to our patreon subscribers. Yeah, we're actually speaking to the people who are binging on iron weeds and they found it on an episode about 134 and we're like, oh shit, this is pretty far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're talking yeah. to you. Yeah. We're talking to you. You in the future. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm, and now, so now I'm considering what we might do next. So if you have something that you are interested in hearing, I don't know, that's not, Bra- that's out of copyright, drop me a line. Yeah. Brought, I have a couple brought ideas. To, brought for... to life with uh, the uh, beautiful radio stylings <laughs> of Brittany Gill. Yeah. Maybe some Mark. Maybe some angle. Mark Angle Linen. <laughs> yeah, I thought it, Mark's, you know, he's just, he's just a little boring. So if you have a strong opinion about uh, what uh, leftist theory we uh, start, you know, producing audiobooks for that it's time I hesitate copyright. to even open that up to folks. <laughs> yeah. Cause, yeah, well, uh, then don't write us. But if you want to write us about anything else, then <laughs> hit us up. Don't, don't okay. tell us about your tendies, about your tendencies. You know, we don't I want to hear about, about your tendies. Uh, nah, Do you yeah. find a particularly good 
like brand of frozen tendies that heats up nice in a mm. microwave yeah. instead yeah. of having to put it in the toaster oven. Yeah. Let me know. Real crispy. Right. Beyond tendies. So uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, correct. <laughs> no, fuck you for listening to this episode. Take your headphones off right now. Throw your AirPods in the toilet. Flush it. Yeah. Goodbye. But for real, uh, we love you all. And uh, thanks for everybody who's been so you know gracious as to support us on Patreon. Uh, which you can find us at patreon.com slash ironweedspod. That's true. Oh, and thank you to... Uh, Ironweed, sorry. <laughs> and thank you to Coley for giving us a shout out in her newsletter. That was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Coley, yeah. if you're out there, thank you for shouting us out in your newsletter. Yeah. That was very sweet. Man, I, I, very I, happy. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can find us on Twitter. Ironweedspod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweedspod. Send us an email at ironweedspod at, at gmail.com. Yeah, last time, the last episode, you guys did it perfectly. Maybe I should even yeah. give you another chance to do it. Well, we'll make it up next time. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Tune in. Uh, and enjoy chapter four, Conquest of Bread, Expropriation. Bye-bye. Bye. Peace. Chapter four, Expropriation. It is told of Rothschild that, seeing his fortune threatened by the revolution of 1848, he hit upon the following stratagem. I am quite willing to admit, said he, that my fortune has been accumulated at the expense of others. But if it were divided tomorrow among the millions of Europe, the share of each would only amount to five shillings. Very well, then. I undertake to render to each his five shillings, if he asks me for it. Having given due publicity to his promise, our millionaire proceeded, as usual, to stroll quietly through the streets of Frankfurt. Three or four passers-by asked for their five shillings, which he dispersed with a sardonic smile. His stratagem succeeded, and the family of the millionaire is still in possession of its wealth. It is in much the same fashion that the shrewd heads among the middle classes reason when they say, Ah, expropriation. I know what that means. You take all the overcoats and lay them in a heap, and everyone is free to help himself and fight for the best. But such jests are irrelevant as well as flippant. What we want is not a redistribution of overcoats, although it must be said that even in such a case, the shivering folk would see advantage in it. Nor do we want to divide up the wealth of the Rothschilds. What we do want is to so arrange things that every human being born into the world shall be insured the opportunity, in the first instance, of learning some useful occupation and of becoming skilled in it. Next, that he shall be free to work at his trade without asking leave of a master or owner, and without handing over to the landlord or capitalist the lion's share of what he produces. As to the wealth held by the Rothschild or the Vanderbilts, it will serve us to organize our system of communal production. The day when the laborer may till the ground without paying away half of what he produces, the day when the machines necessary to prepare the soil for rich harvests are at the free disposal of the cultivators, the day when the worker in the factory produces for the community and not the monopolist, that day will see the workers clothed and fed, and there will be no more Rothschilds or other exploiters. No one will then have to sell his working power for a wage that only represents a fraction of what he produces. So far, so good, say our critics. But you will have Rothschilds coming in from outside. How are you to prevent a person from amassing millions in China and then settling amongst you? How are you going to prevent such a one from surrounding himself with lackeys and wage slaves, 
from exploiting them and enriching himself at their expense. You cannot bring about a revolution all over the world at the same time. Well then, are you going to establish custom houses on your frontiers to search all who enter your country and confiscate the money they bring with them? Anarchist policemen firing on travelers would be a fine spectacle. But at the root of this argument there is a great error. Those who propound it have never paused to inquire whence comes the fortunes of the rich. A little thought would, however, suffice to show them that these fortunes have their beginnings in the poverty of the poor. When there are no longer any destitute, there will no longer be any rich to exploit them. Let us glance for a moment at the Middle Ages, when great fortunes began to spring up. A feudal baron seizes on a fertile valley. But as long as the fertile valley is empty of folk, our baron is not rich. His land brings him nothing. He might as well possess a property in the moon. What does our baron do to enrich himself? He looks out for peasants, for poor peasants. If every peasant farmer had a piece of land, free from rent and taxes, if he had, in addition, the tools and the stock necessary for farm labor, who would plow the lands of the baron? Everyone would look after his own. But there are thousands of destitute persons ruined by wars or drought or pestilence. They have neither horse nor plow. Iron was costly in the Middle Ages, and a draft horse still more so. All these destitute creatures are trying to better their condition. One day they see on the road at the confines of our baron's estate a notice board indicating by certain signs adapted to their comprehension that the laborer who is willing to settle on this estate will receive the tools and materials to build his cottage and sow his fields, and a portion of land rent-free for a certain number of years. The number of years is represented by so many crosses on the signboard, and the peasant understands the meaning of these crosses. So, the poor wretches swarm over the baron's lands, making roads, draining marshes, building villages. In nine years, he begins to tax them. Five years later, he increases the rent. Then he doubles it. The peasant accepts these new conditions because he cannot find better ones elsewhere, and little by little, with the aid of laws made by the barons, the poverty of the peasant becomes the source of the landlord's wealth. And it is not only the lord of the manor who preys upon him. A whole host of usurers swoop down upon the villages, multiplying as the wretchedness of the peasants increases. This is how things went in the Middle Ages. And today, is it not still the same thing? If there were free lands which the peasant could cultivate if he pleased, would he pay fifty pounds to some shabble of a duke for condescending to sell him a scrap? Would he burden himself with a lease which absorbed a third of the produce? Would he, on the metier system, consent to give the half of his harvest to the landowner? But he has nothing, so he will accept any conditions, if only he can keep body and soul together, while he tills the soil and enriches the landlord. So, in the nineteenth century, just as in the Middle Ages, the poverty of the peasant is a source of wealth to the landed proprietor. The landlord owes his riches to the poverty of the peasants, and the wealth of the capitalist comes from the same source. Take the case of a citizen of the middle class, who somehow or other finds himself in possession of 20,000 pounds. He could, of course, spend his money at the rate of 2,000 pounds a year, a mere bagatelle in these days of fantastic, senseless luxury. But then he would have nothing left at the end of 10 years. So, being a practical person, he prefers to keep his fortune intact and win for himself a snug little annual income as well. 
This is very easy in our society, for the good reason that the towns and villages swarm with workers who have not the wherewithal to live for a month or even a fortnight. So our worthy citizen starts a factory. The banks hasten to lend him another 20,000 pounds, especially if he has a reputation for business ability. And with this round sum, he can command the labor of 500 hands. If all the men and women in the countryside had their daily bread, sure, and their daily needs already satisfied, who would work for our capitalist at a wage of half a crown a day, while the commodities one produces in a day sell in the market for a crown or more? Unhappily, we know it all too well, the poor quarters of our towns and the neighboring villages are full of needy wretches whose children clamor for bread. So, before the factory is well finished, the workers hasten to offer themselves. Where a hundred are required, three hundred besiege the doors, and from the time his mill is started, the owner, if he only has average business capacities, will clear forty pounds a year out of each mill hand he employs. He is thus able to lay by a snug little fortune, and if he chooses a lucrative trade and has business talents, he will soon increase his income by doubling the number of the men he exploits. So he becomes a personage of importance. He can afford to give dinners to the other personages, to the local magnates, the civic, legal, and political dignitaries. With his money, he can marry money. By and by, he may pick and choose places for his children, and later on perhaps get something good from the government, a contract for the army or for the police. His gold breeds gold, till at last a war, or even a rumor of war, or a speculation on the stock exchange, gives him his great opportunity. Nine-tenths of the great fortunes made in the United States are, as Henry George has shown in his social problems, the result of knavery on a large scale, assisted by the state. In Europe, Nine-tenths of the fortunes made in our monarchies and republics have the same origin. There are not two ways of becoming a millionaire. This is the secret of wealth. Find the starving and destitute, pay them half a crown, and make them produce five shillings worth in the day, amass a fortune by these means, and then increase it by some lucky hit made with the help of the state. Need we go on to speak of small fortunes attributed by the economists to forethought and frugality when we know that mere saving in itself brings in nothing so long as the pence saved are not used to exploit the famishing? Take a shoemaker, for instance. Grant that his work is well paid, that he has plenty of custom, and that by dint of strict frugality he contrives to lay by from 18 pence to 2 shillings a day, perhaps 2 pounds a month. Grant that our shoemaker is never ill, that he does not half-starve himself in spite of his passion for economy, that he does not marry or that he has no children, that he does not die of consumption. Suppose anything and everything you please. Well, at the age of 50, he will not have scraped together 800 pounds, and he will not have enough to live on during his old age when he has passed work. Assuredly, this is not how great fortunes are made. But suppose our shoemaker, as soon as he has laid by a few pence, thriftily conveys them to the savings bank, and that the savings bank lends them to the capitalist who is just about to employ labor, i.e. to exploit the poor. Then our shoemaker takes on an apprentice, the child of some poor wretch, who will think himself lucky if in five years' time his son has learned the trade and is able to earn his living. Meanwhile, 
our shoemaker does not lose by him, and if trade is brisk, he soon takes a second, and then a third apprentice. By and by, he will take two or three working men, poor wretches, thankful to receive half a crown a day for work that is worth five shillings, and if our shoemaker is in luck, that is to say, if he is keen enough and mean enough, his working men and apprentices will bring him in nearly one pound a day, over and above the product of his own toil. He can then enlarge his business. He will gradually become rich and no longer have any need to stint himself in the necessaries of life. He will leave a snug little fortune to his son. That is what people call being economical and having frugal, temperate habits. At bottom, it is nothing more nor less than grinding the face of the poor. Commerce seems an exception to this rule. Such a man, we are told, buys tea in China, brings it to France, and realizes a profit of 30% on his original outlay. He has exploited nobody. Nevertheless, the case is analogous. If our merchant had carried his bales on his back, well and good. In early medieval times, that was exactly how foreign trade was conducted, and so no one reached such giddy heights of fortune as in our days. Very few and very hardly earned were the gold coins which the medieval merchant gained from a long and dangerous voyage. It was less the love of money than the thirst of travel and adventure that inspired his undertakings. Nowadays, the method is simpler. A merchant who has some capital need not stir from his desk to become wealthy. He telegraphs to an agent telling him to buy a hundred tons of tea. He freights a ship, and in a few weeks, in three months if it is a sailing ship, the vessel brings him his cargo. He does not even take the risks of the voyage, for his tea and his vessel are insured, and if he has expended four thousand pounds, he will receive more than five thousand. That is to say, if he has not attempted to speculate in some novel commodities, in which case he runs a chance of either doubling his fortune or losing it altogether. Now, how could he find men willing to cross the sea, to travel to China and back, to endure hardship and slavish toil, and to risk their lives for a miserable pittance? How could he find dock laborers willing to load and unload his ships for starvation wages? How? Because they are needy and starving. Go to the seaports, visit the cookshops and taverns on the quays, and look at these men who have come to hire themselves, crowding round the dock gates, which they besiege from early dawn, hoping to be allowed to work on the vessels. Look at these sailors, happy to be hired for a long voyage, after weeks and months of waiting. All their lives long they have gone to the sea in ships, and they will sail another still, until they have perished in the waves. Enter their homes. Look at their wives and children in rags, living, one knows not how, till the fathers return, and you will have the answer to the question. Multiply examples, choose them where you will. Consider the origin of all fortunes, large or small, whether arising out of commerce, finance, manufactures, or the land. Everywhere you will find that the wealth of the wealthy springs from the poverty of the poor. This is why an anarchist society need not fear the advent of a Rothschild who would settle in its midst. If every member of the community knows that after a few hours of productive toil he will have a right to all the pleasures that civilization procures, and to those deeper sources of enjoyment which art and science offer to all who seek them, he will not sell his strength for a starvation wage. No one will volunteer to work for the enrichment of your Rothschild. His golden guineas will be only so many pieces of metal useful for various purposes, 
but incapable of breeding more. In answering the above objection, we have at the same time indicated the scope of expropriation. It must apply to everything that enables any man, be he financier, mill owner, or landlord, to appropriate the product of others' toil. Our formula is simple and comprehensive. We do not want to rob anyone of his coat, but we wish to give to the workers all those things the lack of which makes them fall an easy prey to the exploiter, and we will do our utmost that none shall lack aught, that not a single man shall be forced to sell the strength of his right arm to obtain a bare subsistence for himself and his babes. This is what we mean when we talk of expropriation. This will be our duty during the revolution, for whose coming we look not two hundred years hence, but soon, very soon. The ideas of anarchism in general, and of expropriation in particular, find much more sympathy than we are apt to imagine among men of independent character, and those for whom idleness is not the supreme ideal. Still, our friends often warn us, take care you do not go too far. Humanity cannot be changed in a day, so do not be in too great a hurry with your schemes of expropriation and anarchy, or you will be in danger of achieving no permanent result. Now, what we fear with regard to expropriation is exactly the contrary. We are afraid of not going far enough, of carrying out expropriation on too small a scale to be lasting. We would not have the revolutionary impulse arrested in mid-career, to exhaust itself in half-measures, which would content no one, and while producing a tremendous confusion in society and stopping its customary activities, would have no vital power would merely spread general discontent and inevitably prepare the way for the triumph of reaction. There are, in fact, in a modern state, established relations which it is practically impossible to modify if one attacks them only in detail. There are wheels within wheels in our economic organization. The machinery is so complex and interdependent that no one part can be modified without disturbing the whole. This becomes clear as soon as an attempt is made to expropriate anything. Let us suppose that in a certain country a limited form of expropriation is affected. For example, that, as it has been suggested more than once, only the property of the great landlords is socialized, whilst the factories are left untouched. Or that, in a certain city, house property is taken over by the commune, but everything else is left in private ownership. Or that, in some manufacturing center, the factories are communalized, but the land is not interfered with. The same result would follow in each case, a terrible shattering of the industrial system without the means of reorganizing it on new lines. Industry and finance would be at a deadlock, yet a return to the first principles of justice would not have been achieved, and society would find itself powerless to construct a harmonious whole. If agriculture could free itself from great landowners, while industry still remained the bond-slave of the capitalist, the merchant, and the banker, nothing would be accomplished. The peasant suffers today not only in having to pay rent to the landlord. He is oppressed on all hands by existing conditions. He is exploited by the tradesman, who makes him pay half a crown for a spade, which, measured by tile labor spent on it, is not worth more than sixpence. He is taxed by the state which cannot do without its formidable hierarchy of officials, and finds it necessary to maintain an expensive army, because the traders of all nations are perpetually fighting for the markets, 
and any day a little quarrel arising from the exploitation of some part of Asia or Africa may result in a war. Then again, the peasant suffers from the depopulation of country places. The young people are attracted to the large manufacturing towns by the bait of high wages paid temporarily by the producers of articles of luxury, or by the attractions of a more stirring life. The artificial protection of industry, the industrial exploitation of foreign countries, the prevalence of stock jobbing, the difficulty of improving the soil and the machinery of production, all these agencies combine nowadays to work against agriculture, which is burdened not only by rent, but by the whole complex of conditions in a society based on exploitation. Thus, even if the expropriation of land were accomplished, and everyone were free to till the soil and cultivate it to the best advantage, without paying rent, agriculture, even though it should enjoy, which can by no means be taken for granted, a momentary prosperity, would soon fall back into the slough in which it finds itself today. The whole thing would have to be begun over again, with increased difficulties. The same holds true of industry. Take the converse case. Instead of turning the agricultural laborers into peasant proprietors, make over the factories to those who work in them. Abolish the master manufacturers, but leave the landlord his land, the banker his money, the merchant his exchange, maintain the swarm of idlers who live on the toil of the workmen, the thousand and one middlemen, the state with its numberless officials, and industry would come to a standstill. Finding no purchasers in the mass of peasants who would remain poor, not possessing the raw material, and unable to export their produce, partly on account of the stoppage of trade, and still more so because industry spread all over the world, the manufacturers would feel unable to struggle, and thousands of workers would be thrown upon the streets. These starving crowds would be ready and willing to submit to the first schemer who came by to exploit them. They would even consent to return to the old slavery, if only under promise of work. Or, finally, suppose you oust the landlords and hand over the mills and factories to the worker, without interfering with the swarm of middlemen who drain the product of our manufacturers who speculate in corn and flour, meat and groceries, in our great centers of commerce. Then, as soon as exchange is arrested, the great cities are left without bread, and others find no buyers for their articles of luxury. A terrible counter-revolution will take place, a counter-revolution treading upon the slain, sweeping the towns and villages with shot and shell. There would be prescriptions, panic, flight, Tend all the terrors of the guillotine, as it was in France in 1815, 1848, and 1871. All is interdependent in a civilized society. It is impossible to reform any one thing without altering the whole. Therefore, on the day we strike at private property, under any one of its forms, territorial or industrial, we shall be obliged to attack them all the very success of the revolution will demand it. Besides, we could not, if we would, confine ourselves to a partial expropriation. Once the principle of the divine right of property is shaken, no amount of theorizing will prevent its overthrow, here by the slaves of the toil, there by the slaves of the machine. If a great town, Paris, for example, were to confine itself to taking possession of the dwelling houses or the factories, it would be forced also to deny the right of the bankers to levy upon the commune a tax amounting to two million pounds 
in the form of interest for former loans. The great city would be obliged to put itself in touch with the rural districts, and its influence would inevitably urge the peasants to free themselves from the landowner. It would be necessary to communalize the railways, that the citizens might get food and work, and lastly, to prevent the waste of supplies and to guard against the trust of corn speculators, like those to whom the Commune of 1793 fell prey, it would have to place in the hands of the city the work of stocking its warehouses with commodities and apportioning the produce. Nevertheless, some socialists still seek to establish a distinction. Of course, they say, the soil, the mines, the mills, and manufacturers must be expropriated. These are the instruments of production, and it is right we should consider them public property. But articles of consumption, food, clothes, and dwellings, should remain private property. Popular common sense has got the better of this subtle distinction. We are not savages who can live in the woods without other shelter than the branches. The civilized man needs a roof, a room, a hearth, and a bed. It is true that the bed, the room, and the house is a home of idleness for the non-producer. But for the worker, a room, properly heated and lighted, is as much an instrument of production as the tool or the machine. It is the place where the nerves and sinews gather strength for the work of the morrow. The rest of the workman is the daily repairing of the machine. The same argument applies even more obviously to food. The so-called economists of whom we speak would hardly deny that the coal burnt in a machine is as necessary to production as the raw material itself. How then can food, without which the human machine could do no work, be excluded from the list of things indispensable to the producer? Can this be a relic of religious metaphysics? The rich man's feast is indeed a matter of luxury, but the food of the worker is just as much a part of production as the fuel burnt by the steam engine. The same with clothing. If the economists who draw this distinction between articles of production and of consumption dressed themselves in the fashion of New Guinea, we could understand their objection. But men who could not write a word without a shirt on their back are not in a position to draw such a hard and fast line between their shirt and their pen. And though the dainty gowns of their dames must certainly rank as objects of luxury, there is nevertheless a certain quantity of linen, cotton, and woolen stuff which is a necessity of life to the producer. The shirt and shoes in which he goes to his work, his cap, and the jacket he slips on after the day's toil is over, these are as necessary to him as the hammer to the anvil. Whether we like it or not, this is what the people mean by revolution. As soon as they have made a clean sweep of the government, they will seek first of all to ensure to themselves decent dwellings and sufficient food and clothes, free of capitalist rent. And the people will be right. The methods of the people will be much more in accordance with science than those of the economists who draw so many distinctions between instruments of production and articles of consumption. The people understand that this is just the point where the revolution ought to begin and they will lay the foundations of the only economic science worthy of the name, a science which might be called the study of the needs of humanity and of the economic means to satisfy them.